Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Trinity Church in Carryville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, please visit our website, trinity901.com. So, for several weeks now, we've been going through chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, which is a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, his young protege on the ministry field. Paul would go on four missionary journeys, or as Hunter likes to call them, and vehemently insists that we do so, also he calls them church planting journeys. Young Timothy served as Paul's representative in the church plants in Thessalonica, Corinth, Philippi, and Ephesus. Now Paul writes his first letter to Timothy, which is what we're looking at here, and this is as Timothy, he's pastoring the church at Ephesus, and Paul is warning Timothy of the false teachers who have wormed their way into the church. In the verses that immediately precede today's verse, uh, Paul is talking about himself. After starting this letter by mentioning false teachers and then listing some of the sins that are contrary to sound doctrine, Paul begins to talk about himself as a sinner. Paul essentially says, name a sin and I've done it. Pick out someone who's been really bad. Envision some of the worst sins you can think of and you can insert my name there because I've probably done it. Now this is not woe is me, Paul. This is not Paul being self-deprecating. He's telling it like it is. And in the midst of his diatribe, Paul weaves the saving power of Christ who came to save sinners, even as bad as Paul. So here's what Paul says in verses 12 to 16, which was last week's sermon. And then I'll also tack on verse 17, which is today's verse. Paul writes, starting with verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithfully, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So where in the world does this verse come from? This verse 17. Paul had been talking about how sinful he was and how Jesus paid for those sins, and then suddenly he breaks out with this verse 
17, to the kings of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, he doesn't expand on this after he writes it. In fact, he moves on to something else. He starts instructing Timothy again if you go to verse 18. But my sermon is just one verse, this verse 17. And this is uh, uncharted territory, territory for me. I've, I've never preached on just uh, one verse before. So here we go. I will say this. Years ago, I tried my hand at comedy. I did a little bit of stand-up comedy. And for stand-up, you spend actually most of your time writing jokes. You write hundreds of jokes, literally. And you do your best to narrow it down to about 200 jokes. And then you take what you believe are your funniest, maybe 20 or 30-ish jokes, and then you go hit the clubs. So I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and there was no shortage of comedy clubs or coffee houses who would give you three to five minutes at the microphone to tell you, okay, give us your, your best handful of jokes, and you would do so to an audience of four or 14 or whoever might have been there. As soon as your set is over, you hop in the car, and you go hit another club, and you repeat your jokes to that unfortunate audience. And you learn quickly which of your jokes are actually funny and which ones should be put out to pasture for good. And that's stand-up comedy. Now, improv comedy is different. I also did a bit of improv comedy. And improv, uh, which is Greek for improvisational comedy, this kind of comedy is the exact opposite of stand-up. In improv, you're standing on a stage, you've got five other comedians there with you, and you tell the audience to shout out only one word. So somebody shouts out, hamburger. And then with that one word, you and the other comedians on the stage, you immediately begin to create a story based on the word hamburger. And if the comedians are good, they can go on for 30 minutes as they assist one another and tell one story that revolves around hamburger. Well, today we have one verse, and it's one verse that seems to come out of nowhere. It seems unconnected to the verses that precede it and the verses that follow it. However, Paul's one verse is full of power. It's, it's full of meaning, of relevance, of importance. Within Paul's words are an embarrassment of riches. So briefly today, we're going to touch on the five things that Paul mentions in verse 17 in this letter to Timothy. Number one, God as king. Number two, God as immortal. Number three, God as invisible. Number four, there is only one God. And number five, the glory of God. But before we do so, let me open us in a word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, as we speak about the words of Paul this morning, may we do so with the remembrance that Paul was only speaking your words, and there are no other words through which we can be saved. In your saving Son's name, we pray, amen. So let's go ahead and get right into it with the first thing Paul talks about today, which is God as King. Now, the Bible is full of kings, human kings, earthly kings. In the Old Testament, there's a book called 1 Kings, followed by a book called 2 Kings. But God's people, they didn't always have a king. They had leaders. They had Abraham. They had Moses. They had judges. They had prophets. But no king. God was their king. But that wasn't good enough. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the elders were fed up with this this no king stuff. So they told the prophet Samuel, they said, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So God, he lets his people choose a king, and they chose a guy named Saul, and he was a disaster. And then God said... I will choose the next king. He will be a man after my own heart. And God chose David. Now, unlike Saul, David believed in the Lord. But in countless ways, David was a disaster as well. And in Psalm 10, verse 16, King David cries out to the Lord. And he says, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. King David calls someone else the king. David is crying out to the Lord to do something about the wickedness of his day. He pleads with God to restore justice to his people. The Lord is king forever and ever, says David. As Paul puts it, God is the king of the ages, all ages and all times. Theologian Louis Burkhoff talks about how God governs the universe as a king of the universe. He says that in modern times, we tend to see God as only the father, but not really as the king. Burkhoff says he is both king and father, and he is the source of all authority in heaven and on earth, the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. This brings us to number two, God is immortal. David saying forever and ever means that since the beginning of time, God was the king. No, that's not what forever and ever means. God has always been king because God has always been. He precedes time. He invented time. 
God in three persons, the Trinity has always been and has always been king. So, I don't only talk about stand-up I did 14 years ago. I also like to watch movies. I like to watch television and uh, these little series uh, about medieval times and the dark ages. I like, I like the knights and I like the castles and I like the, the plot twists as the characters battle for the throne. They try to defeat one another and all this kind of stuff. In every show I watch, though, about this kind of stuff, without fail... There, there's always that moment where the king dies, and they always say the same thing. The king is dead. Long live the king. And this happened recently in real life with the passing of Queen Elizabeth. They cried out, the queen is dead. Long live the king. Queen Elizabeth had just died, and immediately King Charles, her son, would take over to rule the monarchy. And, and this is an official declaration. And the reason they do this in real life, just like in the movies, is so there is never a moment without a king. It's as if the king never dies. The king is dead. Long live the king. I actually find the life of Queen Elizabeth very fascinating. As, as you know by now, she reigned for 70 years. Didn't live for 70 years, she reigned for 70 years. She lived through world wars, the moon landing. She saw several presidents come and go. She was an amazing woman who accomplished amazing things. She was, but then she died. She was not immortal. And no ruler is. And none of us are. Paul, he is no stranger to the word immortal. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, he, he talks about people who reject the immortal God for mortal objects. Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. If you are a Mormon, you believe God is immortal, but not Jesus. God created Jesus. Similarly, those that follow New Age religion believe that Jesus is not God, but that he is a spiritual model that anybody can tap into. Here's what the Bible says about Christ, he says, the Bible, and this is Paul speaking in Colossians, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, 
All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. Christ is the image of the invisible God. So now we're at point number three. God is invisible. Jesus is God and there were people who saw Jesus. But while Jesus could be seen and touched and talked to, he remained fully God, fully divine, but thankfully for us, he became fully human at the same time. Christ became human so that he could be the perfect representative for us and to take all of our sins and carry them to the cross. To save us, God had to become one of us. Now, some people might say, well, didn't Moses see God? In Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses asked God, he says, God, please show me your glory. And here's how God responds to Moses. God says, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Now, why is that? Why is it that no one can see God, no one can see his face and live? Because we couldn't take it. We, we couldn't handle it. We are too sinful and God is too holy. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, it destroyed our relationship with God. Adam could no longer hang with God and talk with God the way he used to. Who told you you were naked? Why are you suddenly naked, Adam? Let me put some clothes on you and Eve because you are suddenly embarrassed. It looks like now there is a barrier between you and me, Adam. And there is. And it's called sin. And this is why we cannot look upon God and live. He's, he's too holy. Like Moses, we couldn't, we couldn't take it. We couldn't handle it. But no sooner had Adam and Eve sinned that God immediately said to them, I will send you a redeemer. And in the opening pages of the Gospel of John, he writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. To save us, Jesus had to become one of us, the perfect substitute for our sins. This brings us to number four. 
So Paul, uh, Paul calls the Bible, or excuse me, Paul calls the God of the Bible the only God. Paul says he is the only God. Now I have a lot of family in, in Boston, and we're, we're a pretty diverse bunch. My, my aunt married a fantastic Jewish man, and then she converted to Judaism shortly after they got married. My cousin, also in Boston, married a Muslim man who is literally one of the kindest and most generous men you'll ever meet. And a few years ago, my sister and my father, both who are Christians, went to visit the Boston family, and I, I guess they were all getting ready to eat dinner or something, and someone said, let's pray. I don't remember the details, but my cousin said, well, it's all the same God anyway, right? And I wasn't there, but when, when I heard about this visit, I thought, wow, how, how would I have answered this question? Would I, would, you know, would I have answered that question? I mean, this is family. These are, these are all great people, and I wouldn't want wouldn't to offend anybody. Uh, they're having a meal. You have... Christians and Jews and Muslims, they're all breaking bread together. Well, it's all the same God anyway, right? Well, now I have had some time to think about this question, and I guess my answer to this would be something along these lines. By each of these three religions' definitions of who Jesus is, we are not all praying to the same God. Christians believe that there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These three persons of the Trinity are equal in power and glory and majesty. Now, if you're Jewish, you don't believe that Jesus is God, and if you're Muslim, you don't believe that Jesus is God. The Bible says, just like we read a second ago, that in the beginning the beginning, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, Jesus, and that all things were made through him. So Christians would say that when you pray to God, if that God doesn't include Jesus, then you are praying to someone else. Peter says this in Acts chapter 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this leads us to our fifth and final part of today's verse. God deserves all the glory and all the honor forever and ever. The people wanted a human king, and it was a disaster. Even when God chose a human king for them, David, King David knew where to bow his knee, and he does so as he prays in First Chronicles. Yours, O Lord, is the, the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty 
For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Now, it's hard for us to put the glory of God into words. We're, we're still naked. We can't look upon his face and live. He's, he's too holy. Well, there's no better place to get a glimpse of God's glory than in the book of Revelation. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him with lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, Lord. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. For those of us who believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins and that there is no other name by which we can be saved, Paul says that here on earth, for Christians, actually, you can see God, sort of. He says, for now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then in heaven I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Those who, who, who receive Christ as king, those who receive Christ as, as Lord, will be able to look God in the eyes in heaven in all his glory. Those who know Christ will be able to look God in the eyes, and they will be able to do this thanks to the saving grace of his Redeemer Son. First Timothy here is a pastoral letter. In verse 17 that we've been looking at, it doesn't seem to fit, but what could be more pastoral than these words? Paul is saying, Remember, Timothy, just who you are serving. You will have tough days ahead. Things aren't always great. We can look at our own lives today and, and, and apply that. We will have tough days ahead. Things aren't always great. Life can be hard. But there is one who came to save sinners. And Paul is saying, Timothy, sinners like me and you and that guy over there and that woman over there, Sinners like, like Noah and Abraham and Moses. Jesus came to save Mary, the young woman who carried him in her womb. He was her king too. So as I close this out in prayer this morning, let's let Paul close this out for us. Please bow with me 
in prayer. So to Timothy and to all of us here at Trinity Church, Paul says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.